0: Did you see the Telegram was bragging about 500 million active users? Oh, boy. Yeah, and they said 25 million new users in the last 72 hours. It kind of seems like a great way to get a target right on their back. Somebody's going to take notice. Apparently, it was a big wave from the riot on Capitol Hill. A bunch of people were like, oh, no, we need to communicate in top security. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh.
1: Oh, yeah, telegram the
2: maximum security
1: chat program. Nobody tell them about Matrix.
0: Hello, friends, and welcome into your weekly Linux talk show. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Hello, Wes. Looking very dapper today. I like the all-silver outfit. Well, I thought you'd like the bow tie especially. Well, you know what really impresses me is those socks. That is really going the extra mile. This episode is brought to you by a Cloud Guru, the leader in hands-on learning. The only way to learn a new skill, you know it, is by doing it. That's why ACG provides hands-on labs, Cloud Linux servers, and much more. Get your hands cloudy at a CloudGuru.com. So here we are gathered together for episode 388, and we're doing things a little differently. So I wanna, first, I want to say, just to keep some tradition, some form, I want to say time-appropriate greetings to the Mumble Room. Hello, Virtual Lug. Hello. Hello. Hey, man. Time-appropriate greetings. Good evening. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. We're all kind of uh, fired up today because we've been playing around with Peertube 3.0, which introduced live streaming support, and it's peer-to-peer live streaming. And it really is now a full YouTube killer in a box. You get everything you get with YouTube, like from the good old days, where a clean feed of what people have recently posted, subscriptions. But unlike YouTube, where it's spying on you constantly to feed an ad algorithm... It's free, open source software, and it's peer-to-peer, and it can federate with other peer-tube instances. You guys have heard us talk about it before. We've had different experiments with it. And recently we've been experimenting with a real small instance over at jupiter.tube and playing around with its peer-to-peer live streaming support. So this episode and the and the last three days worth of live stream or tests that we've done have all been on peer tube. And it's it's kind of crazy exciting because it is working. And it has allowed us with one Linode and some object storage to essentially create a worldwide CDN where people are watching it. And it still seems like it has a couple of kinks, so we're still testing it. It's not like a production thing. But Wes, I mean, how long do you think the setup was in total? Oh, well, I don't know,
3: an hour or two maybe at most. You know, We, we built a test, a real test one, and then we spun up our uh, actual test instance. So, you know, there's some things getting everything configured, getting installed, but... I mean, it's all powered by Docker anyway, and they've also got a very robust and nice guide if you just want to set things up traditionally. Use the stuff like Postgres and Redis and TypeScript, so nothing weird or out of the box or hard to find, anything like that. So, I mean, an afternoon, really. An afternoon to get it set up, start playing with it, and since then it's it's been the same configuration. They've got a lot of nice admin facilities. They've got like a a guide for hey, you're the back end admin, and you want to set everything up by hand. And they've also just got like a guide aimed at once you've got an instance, how do you administer this? How do you set it up? How do you make it useful? How do you set all the transcode options? Honestly, I've been pretty impressed by the docs and all the configurability so far.
0: Yeah, and uh, the options are are really getting there. I think customization, but not in an overwhelming way, is a big part of what they're trying to go with this. So as some as a content creator, I like a lot of the options they give me. You know, I can set. I can set system themes. I can install plugins fairly easily. It's easy to create live streams and choose if the live stream is persistent and remains available for playback afterwards. But the other thing that's nice because of the architecture is we have 30 people or so watching it right now, and the load on the server itself still remains pretty low. Yeah, Early on, we were looking at it, and it was bouncing between 6% on the CPU. and This is a four-core box. Uh, to about 40%. And at one point, just looking at the history, it looks like it spiked up to around 60% CPU usage. But this is, it's a, it's, it's a YouTube instance in a box with 30 people watching a live stream. Um, and you can configure how many are allowed to live stream. And then the, the viewers themselves become the CDN. It's just so, it's so neat. And I, I love where the project's going with it. So we're all kind of fired up today because we've been talking about that. But we're gathered here really to geek out on GPUs. I think even if you're not a graphics head, you're going to get some valuable information out of this episode. I've been testing this new XPS 13 from Dell, uh, the latest developer edition with the 11th gen Intel processor. I recently reviewed it in Coder 395. I've been honestly trying to just wrap my noodle around the performance of this XE GPU and the 11th gen CPU. And... I knew I, I I needed to better understand it for the audience because I could tell I was reaching the limits of my understanding. And so I wanted to reach out to somebody who had a deep understanding of this stuff and could communicate it really well. So I called up Wendell from Level 1 Techs and, of course, Level 1 Linux. He's a great resource for this kind of stuff. And he's been covering a little bit of the future of these XE GPUs and what it could mean for virtualization on his Level 1 Linux channel. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. So he he came on and he and I just started geeking out we started talking about the Xe GPU we talked about Intel's new one API initiative which I won't spoil it's it's a massive endeavor that Intel's trying to leverage their position that they have right now and then later on in the interview we also get into his current daily driver Linux setup which I think you might be surprised about his answer Ooh mm-hmm. Yeah I got to ask you know I got to ask Of course Of course there's a few terms that get used in this episode that I wanted to define if you're not a graphics head uh, GVTG is virtualizing the GPU for multiple guest machines. So it effectively gives you near native GPU performance in a virtual machine while still also allowing the host to use that GPU. So that's GVTG. VFIO comes up. That allows virtual machines direct access to PCI hardware resources like the GPU or a, a network card or another, another PCI device. I've actually passed through like a USB card to it uh, and an, an, even a dock, a Thunderbolt dock. Uh, that's using VFIO. And then also another term that gets mentioned that you may or may not be familiar with in this interview is iGPU. In the context of our chat, it's the graphics card that comes built into Intel CPUs. But don't worry, stick with it. Even if you're not a graphics person, I think there's something uh, that'll interest you that's worth listening to in this chat with Wendell. So the reason I wanted to chat with you today was I got my hands on a Dell XBS Developer Edition. That has an i5 11th gen Intel CPU and the XELP graphics in it. And this little laptop is blowing my X1 carbon with 10th gen with an i7 CPU and GPU away. I mean, it just is shredding it in machine learning benchmarks. And I can play actual video games on it, I can play Tomb Raider. I can play Hotshot Racing, I can play CSGO, and, you know, nothing that's super demanding, but games I'm currently playing that I actually <laughs> enjoy playing, I can play them on this laptop with a, with an integrated GPU. And I I, th- I, thought to myself, something must be going on here more than I can appreciate. And I thought, you know, this is something I need to ask Wendell. Is like, what's going on with these <laughs> XE or Z graphics? And I, I hear about a dedicated GPU and all, the whole thing. So can you kind of just fill me in?
2: So Intel had their one API thing, and a lot of you know, details, I guess, about the Intel graphics stuff came to light. And they've got Xe graphics now in their 11th gen. And to me, that's not as not quite. I mean, it's imp- like, OK, it's impressive, but it's also not super impressive because the uh, integrated graphics sort of stagnated there for, I don't know, what, like four generations. And then so the Xe graphics that's in, you know, the 11th gen. Yeah, it's okay, but what Apple is able to do with their integrated graphics arguably is more impressive because that would be something more on the level of what I would expect from Intel when they're going to release Xe graphics to begin with. But maybe the second generation of that'll be good. And at Intel in their one API, they sort of revealed some of like the the DG1 dedicated graphics stuff and like DG2 and what they have in mind for Xe graphics especially in the data center and you know packing a thousand you know, Dota sessions or whatever on a, uh, on a single card, uh, which, you know, had four GPs on it, but you know, it's a single PCIe card. And so that, that's kind of exciting, um, because they're hitting power targets, not just, you know, throwing, you know, raw watts at it to get the performance. Um, but also like, maybe that will be good for laptop users having those, those kind of things integrated, but in the bigger picture, how everything stacks up, it's like the, uh, Apple M1, and then, like, Radeon integrated graphics. And then way on down the list is the old iGPU. And somewhere between, you know, uh the M1 and... The really old IGPU is XE graphics. It it wins some against Radiant. It it loses some against against Radiant. It's a different, different architecture and it's it, it is really interesting.
0: I suppose your point's well taken though. It, ideally we would have been at where we're at right now about three generations ago. Um yes. so it's good, but not good as good as it should be by now.
2: Yes. Yeah. I mean, if you if you want to take the the anti Apple spin on it, you can say, well, you know, Apple was able to do this with, you know, a failed toaster parts and a used rubber bands. So, <laughs> you know, the big people should have been able to at least be that good. But, the, you know, the reality is that Arm and some other things are are doing some some magic for us. But Apple did some genuinely good engineering with their processors and worked with some smart and talented people to, to sort of, to sort of bring it together. And Xe graphics is still sort of bolted on a, a legacy architecture, but, um, I don't have a feel for how different or how similar Xe graphics is to things that have been tried in the past, like Larby. And, um, you know, early on with Larby, it looked like Larby was going to be amazing because, they were like, they did their engineers did a deep dive on, I think, Quake, one of the id software engines. And, you know, it's like, you know, just there's a thousand or two thousand lightweight x86 cores on this GPU because, yeah, you can use x86 for everything. I mean, that what could possibly be wrong with that idea? Mm-hmm. And then you look at a game like Quake and it turns out that that, that kind of a game, the engine was basically from the mind of a genius or mind of, of several geniuses. And nobody else built game engines that way. But that wasn't really discovered until they went to port other game engines later. Uh, and so it was like, oh, Larabee, maybe this isn't good for anything running other than anything other than Quake. But in terms of running hardware really quickly, it ran Quake really, really amazingly well. And that's what Apple has done with M1 And m1 graphics is they've looked really closely they've done a lot of analysis on the software that they run and the instructions and also the emulation layer like the stuff that they added to make arm better able to deal with x86 instructions which are you know variable length that's some really clever stuff but it's from a deep dive at just looking at the sequence of instructions that are run and looking at the insanity and saying okay what do we have to do here Let's let's make this let's make this work. It stands to reason they did the same thing with graphics, and that's the difference here. That's the difference for the IGPU. They really looked at uh, you know a whole ecosystem of games because Tomb Raider, Tomb Raider is fairly well optimized. It runs really good on the uh, on the uh, the mobile embedded platform with Xe graphics. For one API, what I'm starting to see from one API is Intel saying, okay, in order for us to squeeze more performance out of silicon, we're going to have to change. Our software, and so I think you know this is kind of long-winded, but this is just a long-winded way to to preface by saying I think Apple is taking a hardware-assisted software optimization route, and I think Intel is taking a software-assisted hardware optimization path. So on the one hand, you've got Apple, which is doing a pre-pass on your software to make it better fit the hardware, and the hardware has stuff in it to. Run the instructions that are not, you know, necessarily arm instructions a little better. Intel, on the other hand, is saying we need to make adjustments in software and recompile, and so this is happening at com- compile time. And the other one's not happening at compile time, but it's not happening at runtime either. It's sort of in the me- in in the mix.
0: And so I think there's pros and cons for both approaches. Sure. It seems to me, though, the advantage long term of Intel's approach is that that stuff is baked into Linux. And as longtime Linux users, I, I, I think you probably agree, we can be patient with this kind of stuff. And if it means in years down the road, we will have really reasonable laptop and desktop graphics that are totally supported out of the box when I install Linux, I'm along for the ride. And it doesn't have to be absolutely... That's what I think excited me about the XE graphics, is it doesn't have to be competitive with the latest NVIDIA and AMD graphics. That's not my work case. My work case is mostly I want an I want an accelerated desktop. I want accelerated video encoding and decoding. And I want to be able to play some games really well. But not doesn't have to be like on absolutely high settings. And I, I think Intel could get us there and no driver fiddling required. I just recently in two different scenarios with two totally different distributions, went down the rabbit hole of having to fix a system after a failed NVIDIA driver install. And it felt like I was back in the early 2000s all of a sudden. And so for me, I just can't wait for this stuff to work out of the box. And I think the other thing that you touched on in a video of yours that I'll link in the show notes, is it seems like Intel's baking in more shared GPU features for virtual machines. And that could be really awesome for a lot of users. Yeah, I think, um, well, one API, their vision of one
2: API is comprehensive from, from what I can tell. And so imagine like, yes, it's all of those things, but it also reaches into other operating systems, even than just Linux like Android. So their vision of it is to Make it super easy for developers to not have to worry about anything. So I, um, I did the interview with um with Jeff McVeigh. It'll probably it'll probably be out maybe Monday or Tuesday, and um, you know, obviously a lot of it is is not there yet. But the vision is to make everybody not have to worry about it. And if you look at the language, like the problem that I have with it, if you look at the language, it's a lot of really crazy stuff in terms of really high level abstraction and it's like, okay, but tell me how that's going to make my life easier. And one thing that I have, you know, a a personal experience with is just the linear algebra libraries and the linear algebra libraries. Like you think it's like, how many ways are there to just, you, you know, let's, let's compute, you know, the, the eigenvalues of this, let's do some matrix multiplication. turns out on a modern x86 processors, there's like a dozen ways to do that. And some ways are faster than others. Some ways are faster with a sparse data set. Some da- some ways are faster with a you know a, f- a full data set. Some ways are, are, you know, it's just, it's crazy. And so a lot with this open source, like when you're doing the research thing, you, you actually need to run some tests, not only in your data set, but also on the machines that you have available to do the testing. Like you can't just dive into the calculations and, and say to the library, here, go calculate this for me. You're not necessarily going to get the most efficient path to do the calculations based on your hardware and the available data. And so one API is supposed to take all of that away, but also supposed to make things a little easier cross platform. Like, you know, the new, the new iPhone 12 has like this lidar thing that's completely crazy. And I was watching, I think it was an Unreal Engine demo the other day or something. No, it was, it was a, it was some third party company has, uh, trained a model that will produce blender models from lidar and the camera. And it is unbelievable. Like you just hold the camera up and slowly move it around as it, as it indicates. And it uses the lidar and the, the camera in the iPhone to produce a realistic blender model of whatever it is that you you were doing with your phone and it is truly incredible it's, it's just it's just insane And so from the descriptions of one API what's happening in my brain is saying okay if you're going to build that, There's a phone component, there's a cloud component, there's a training component. There's all these different software stacks. You think about developing an Android, it's like, okay, I'm going to get out Eclipse or Android Studio, the JetBrains tools, whatever, and start, you know, there's that whole tech stack and ODB and getting all of that stuff ready. And then in the cloud side of it, it's like, am I using Amazon Lambda? And there's kind of all the stuff that goes with that. Or if I'm, I'm not using Amazon Lambda, maybe I have to do my own cloud infrastructure. Maybe I'm going to need, you know, a whole tech stack there. And then there's probably going to be some middleware applications where I'm going to do, you know, some special sauce or whatever. And it's going to be a whole other product stack there. And Intel is saying, look, this is too much to ask of developers and research scientists and stuff like that. We need to come up with. A really high level interface to all of this stuff and opening it as much as possible so that everybody will b- will build it because we're spending a lot of our time, you know, figuring out which instruction set will do basic linear algebra the quickest and we don't need to do that. And um, that is kind of a, you know, to your point, that is kind of, a, a kind of what Intel has in mind is to take those optimizations away, to, to so that you don't have to, you don't have to do those optimizations yourself. The library sort of knows that and, and figures that out.
0: How long do you think we'll be waiting around to see one API take off? And what do you suppose the chances are of vendor adoption, like say AWS, for example, or? Or other vendors, are they on board? Or is this going to be something that Intel comes up with that's a really great idea that doesn't really see much vendor adoption?
2: I don't know. I think it's so large and so ambitious. It's probably going to be both. <laughs> We're probably going to see some vendors adopt it and for it to make sense in some places. I would love nothing more than like, you know, again, like for for one API and all of its lofty goals, it's hard to talk about because it is so large and abstract. But like concrete goals for me personally is I hope Intel's GVTG takes off. This is kind of like Intel's answer to SRIOV. And it's been here a while. It's not really new. Actually, Intel's moving a lot of things that they've already had under one API. So in some ways, like yes, it's ambitious, and we talk about it in Lofty Goals, but the reality here is a lot of this stuff already existed somewhere else in some way, and they're just kind of bringing it together. But GVTG... Is an extension uh, to the, the graphics subsystem, the iGPUs, like in in Xeon E3s. So I think Intel's had this discrete GPU plan for a while. Now, you know, the iGPU and a Xeon E3—that is. Like when you, when you say anemic GPU, like that's, <laughs> there's a picture there. That's, that's what it is. So it's like, okay, I've taken, you know, an unsustainable amount of food and I've divided it among four people or I've divided it, you know, I've divided this, this infinitesimal amount of GPU horsepower among four virtual machines. And you can do that with GVTG. You can, you can slice and dice it with two virtual machines or three virtual machines. Unlike SRIOV, which tends to be more of a hard partition when we're talking about in a the, in the graphics space in terms of VRAM and some of the other other components, mm. GVTG is a little bit more flexible. You get, you know, GPUs weren't designed for things like context switching, but you have a little bit more of an ability to do context switching-like behavior um, with GVTG. And so in the demonstrations that uh, Jeff McVeigh did in the one API presentation and, you know, in some of the stuff that Roger Koderi was talking about, it looked like their GPUs we're set up to do that so it's like i want to run a thousand dota clients across four gpus okay you know we can do that now we've got a really you know a really heavy demanding uh simulation workload that we need to run in this other virtual machine and it's like okay well we can we can move the dota clients over to these these three gpus and give the the heavy simulation you know one dedicated piece of silicon or or whatever it takes to to actually run it and so those Functions are the things that I'm looking out for. I'm looking for that. I want to be able to take the changes that they make to the Linux kernel and be able to roll with that because one of the things they specifically talked about in the presentation is being able to take the frame buffer from that GPU and shove it into another GPU directly over the PCI bus without hitting main memory. And for our looking glass project, that would be the holy grail. Like if the plumbing is there in the Linux kernel to do that for... The uh, Intel GPUs. We know Radeon GPUs are quasi-capable of it. What do we need to do to? Move, we as a community need to do to move the needle forward to be able to do direct GPU frame buffer frame buffer copies. At that point, we're no longer constrained by main memory bandwidth. We can literally copy that frame buffer directly into another GPU from a guest GPU to a host GPU, and that's really
0: the next step for speed and optimization
2: in VFIO
0: not only for enterprise workloads where they're doing simulations or tons of streaming clients, but I would love to see this land in consumer machines because it would make VMs super fast, obviously, but it also means we'd be a step closer to fully isolated applications where the entire stack is completely isolated, but you're not taking a big performance penalty for that.
2: Yeah, I think uh, having a hardware assist, I mean, that level of... uh... Containerization, I, I don't really call it containerization because that applies something else, but that level of containerization, that can only be the future.
0: Or isolation.
2: Yeah. I mean, we have to have this level of secure compute. Like, there's no, like, the security threats and the stuff that we see with, with things like solar wind. There is no reason today that we shouldn't be running all of our applications in individual application sandboxes. I mean, it's almost to the point where each individual application should have its own encrypted memory space. The thing that's preventing us from getting there is market segmentation. We have the hardware. We have the technology. Come on, guys. Let's dot the I's and cross the T's. Right.
0: Yes, that sounds like another rant I heard recently from uh, (laughs) a (laughs) well-known individual. (laughs) I want to take a moment and welcome a brand new sponsor to the network and to the show. It's Dear. And the timing is perfect because I think a lot of us are looking for a better take on how to do monitoring and looking for something that was designed to work with automation. And that's where Odeer comes in. Go to Odeer.app and use the promo code Linux for a $10 discount on any plan. Odeer was co-founded by the author of Cron.Weekly and a listener of this show. So they're also from the community. And I think that's really great. You know, as somebody who does run a lot of services, I know what it's like to be informed by my listeners that something's out before I know it's out. So be the first to know when your site is unavailable. O'Deer has global uptime checking with servers that are worldwide that will report a problem as soon as it happens from multiple different angles. And they can go deep into your site. They can crawl and index your entire website and detect a broken link and notify you about that. There's also the ability, of course, to monitor all kinds of aspects of the backend infrastructure. So perhaps you have scheduled tasks or uh, cron jobs and you want to find out if they've run or not and look and get alerts if something doesn't execute. Odear completely accommodates that. Odear is always monitoring the performance and speed of your website over time. So they can detect if something happens immediately, if you have a sudden performance impact, something gets really slow. Or get a historical snapshot. See if performance is changing over time. But the thing that really makes ODEAR really special is the API. It lets you configure everything about the application. Everything you see in your dashboard can be controlled with an easy-to-use RESTful API. And, of course, any changes you make via the API are visible in the dashboard in real time. It's the monitoring solution that embraces automation and gives you the tools to make it possible. And its comprehensive API means there's tons of third-party integrations already available. There's, of course, a command line client. But there's other neat ways to interface with, like, the notifications in the system, too, over the API. Like a Telegram chatbot, there's a JavaScript SDK, a Terraform provider, and a lot more. So right now, head over to odier.app, odier.app, and start a 10-day, no-strings-attached trial. No credit card required. You can get set up in less than a minute. And when you do sign up for any of the plans, use the promo code LINUX, for a $10 discount. And if they ask, tell them the Linux Unplugged program sent you. It's pretty neat. And I think you probably agree. It's time to relook at how we're doing monitoring. Go with a fresher take on something that is designed for automation with a comprehensive API. And great documentation, too. So check them out. It's dot Odear, Odear.app. Promo code Linux for a $10 discount. And thanks to Odear for sponsoring the Unplugged program. So my conversation with Wendell continues, and I asked him about his daily driver Linux setup. So uh, before we go, I want to ask you one last question. And that's just uh, a snapshot of what Wendell's daily Linux drivers look like today. Are you still mostly a Fedora guy? What kind of hardware, etc.? My main machine is a Threadripper machine. It's a 3970X.
2: It's got 128 gigabytes of memory in it right now. It has a Tesla V100, uh, 2080 Ti and a, uh, I think it's a, no, no, it's the 6800. It's a 6800 non XT. And I'm about out of PCIe lanes <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wow.
0: Do you just run the whole OS out of RAM or what?
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I mean, that's the, that's the goal right now. Um, the, uh, the V100 can, you can use the V100 as a Titan kind of sort of. Um, in, in a VFIO, like, type, pass-through type situation. Oh, that's nice. That works pretty well, yeah. So, you can, you can run it as a V100 as per pure compute, or you can run it as, as whatever. Uh, it's still, it's still a little sketchy sometimes, binding and unbinding, um, uh, GPUs. Um, so, that can, that can be a, a little, a little weird. And, uh, it's not, it's definitely not an ideal situation. Um, I'm not running Fedora right now. Um, I do have, I it's, I'm running uh 20.10 because I've been helping a lot of people on our forum use 20.10. I still have another machine that I do work on, which, uh, is still running Fedora, but the Threadripper machine is, is running Ubuntu. And, um, it's, uh, it doesn't have the same optimizations for performance for virtual machines, um, out of the box. And so, people on our forum and some and some other people will have trouble with things like you know sometimes there's crackling audio or sometimes like the virtual machine performance is fine until you go to write to disk and i i found that i've had to do a lot more um sort of hand tuning to get those things to work well on the ubuntu uh 20.10 kernel versus fedora and uh, i was going to try the low latency kernel but then i ran into another problem which is you don't get ZFS out of the box necessarily. And so like the newer kernel, it's like, okay, I'll download the, the, the devs for Ubuntu from kernel.org. It's like, oh yeah, ZFS is not a thing with those kernels. Crap.
0: I did not realize that.
2: Yeah. It's a, uh, and then it's like, okay, let me get the DKMS thing. And it's like, oh, this doesn't work either. And it's like, have I, have I painted myself into a corner here? <laughs> so I've been, I've been forcing myself to use this setup so that I can sort of learn what those pitfalls are. Cause I didn't expect that either. Like I expected that when I download the Ubuntu, the Ubuntu kernel from kernel.org, you know, for 20, cause it's like, okay, let's try 5.10 on 20.10. But, yeah, ZFS, the ZFS DKMS thing wouldn't doesn't build, and it's not in the kernel because the canonical hasn't got a hold of it yet. So you have to get the kernel that canonical got a hold of in order to get ZFS.
0: Oh, oh that can, okay. When you, when you lay it out like that, I guess that makes sense. I see it. But that was a nice gotcha, and it's interesting that there's enough people that are using 2010 uh, that you felt motivated to switch over to it. Um, and you think people are doing that instead of using the LTSs for graphics driver and Mesa stack updates, or yeah, th- th- that's what led
2: to all of that. There was there was a bit of a a bit of a kerfuffle when um, the 6000 series GPUs launched, and it was like crap. I'm gonna have to figure this out. And it really for me, it wasn't really too bad, but. You know, I I might be a little bit snow blind to it because I have so much experience with it. But it really wasn't a huge deal to get it working on 20.10. And so, like, you know, AMD did a lot of work to get it working on 20.04. But 20.10 launched, like, the week before the GPUs launched. And so you could install the driver from AMD.com. And there's, you can get the open driver or the proprietary driver. But the open driver was basically abharity with the, with the closed driver. And you could get Mesa, newer Mesa and RadV and, and some other stuff. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but the, all the accoutrement that goes like with the stuff that's not in the kernel. But it's a little bit of a, you know, I could, I can kind of relate because it's a little bit of a trap for newbies because, It's like, oh, I'm running the newest kernel. And it's like, well, there's all this other stuff that's not in the kernel that you also need in order to be able to run your games and do your stuff. Or you need somebody to backport those things into something that will run in your environment. And so and and then or some poor soul somewhere has to spend a ton of time backporting the cool stuff in 5.10, which there's a ton of cool stuff in 5.10 and newer to like kernel 5.8 or 5.4 in the case of 20.04 And so it's kind of an impossible situation because you want the people doing the development, doing the development on branch master, I guess, for lack of a better way to describe it, like on head, like you want them doing the work there because that's where it is. Or they know where the bodies are buried, you know, wherever it was. And so they were doing their work all along when head was 5.4 and they know what's broken in 5.4. And so it seems like a crazy situation where... You know, somebody inside of AMD and somebody inside of Valve or somebody on Valve's indirect payroll, because Valve is greasing the wheels here very quietly with a lot of money and that is appreciated. But, you know, it sort of gets spoiled. Like if, if it's like, oh, Valve is paying three million dollars to, you know, developers all over the world to advance this thing forward, then, you know, people tend to want to, want to, want to just pee in the Cheerios as it were. It's better to just keep it quiet and just get the work done and, you know, not, not do anything for the fanfare.
0: They're not necessarily in it for the glory anyways.
2: Yeah. Yeah. They just, it's like, I just, I just want a reasonable computing experience. That's where I am with VFIO. It's like the whole reason I do the VFIO stuff rather than trying to run it native is like, I don't, you know, I don't have time for this. I just want it to work. And it's like, yes, I would love it if everything worked perfectly on Linux, but. I don't have time for that. Um, so I want Linux to do what Linux does well, because I can count on Linux to do that. I don't want to bring the, the the horrible ugliness into Linux because it's my nice, clean, pristine, you know, thing. But um like the whole understanding in the community of like the whole driver thing with the 6000 series GPUs and all that, it's just, it's like when the fabs were spinning up making those GPUs, there were developers developing on what was then the head of development for the linux kernel which is probably like 5.4 5.6 or something in that We're not in 5.10 or you know 5.10
0: you know, Beta
2: 1 or whatever.
0: And Ubuntu 2004 would have been sort of the big release. It's what, you know, Canonical says the majority of their users are using the LTS releases. Of course, the enthusiasts are using the latest releases and enthusiasts are likely the ones to buy new GPUs when they first come out, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
2: okay, we're using an LTS support, but long-term support doesn't imply that it's going to have the scaffolding and infrastructure to be able to support all of the stuff that you get with graphics Graphics. So like LTS support, it's like, okay, we're going to spin up our network driver. We're going to spin up our mouse driver because our mouse has 37 buttons and the built-in driver doesn't handle that well
0: or whatever. That's going to be fine because that device isn't changing very often. It's on the market. It's set. It's fixed, right? Yeah. The interface in the kernel is not really changing. But with GPUs, that's not
2: really the case. The interface within the kernel is changing dramatically. Yeah. And because of the work bringing the newer GPUs to the kernel, we see in what ways the old interface is deficient. So then it becomes a huge amount of work to backport those changes to the kernel to the old kernel effectively you are you know just dressing up cherry picking bits of kernel 5.10 and shoving it into kernel 5.4 and at that point we're just deluding ourselves it's like (laughs) you you might as well go to kernel 5.10 i mean you're probably going to introduce more bugs than you solve because you've you know, packaged and backported so much functionality yeah. in kernel 5.10 that
0: you're, you're running more kernel 5.10 than 5.4 at this point. I mean, come on. So what you're really saying, Windows, it would just be easier if the entire world ran Arch and was rolling all the time. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Exactly. <laughs> but you know, this is, I get like Linus saying it's like, don't break user space. I interpret to say Linus is saying you can trust to update your kernel and we probably will not screw you. Right. And so the idea of, you know, okay, we're going to have an LTS distro, but I also need to keep my kernel on whatever version of the kernel existed then. I think I could see historically like how that was a thing. Cause yeah, I mean, I'm, I was guilty of that. I was running, you know, kernel two point something on Debian for like way longer than I should have, like guilty as charged, but. Where we are now with the Linux kernel, it's so good and they, they are usually, not always, but usually so quick about being on top of problems that for, yeah. for workstations, long-term support means something entirely different than servers, I think. And so I think my philosophy is like, let's just roll with the the newest kernel that's reasonably stable, and we'll probably have a better experience for it, even on an LTS kernel. And you can totally install a newer kernel on an LTS kernel, and most of the time, not run into problems.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, thank you, Wendell. All right, it was great having Wendell on, and uh, check out Level 1 Text and the link we have in the show notes. He knows so much about it, I just like I like to absorb the knowledge. But I do want to do a spot of housekeeping before we go on. Do join the Luplug if you get a chance on Sundays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. It's on our mumble server, just in the lobby. You can get info at linuxunplug.com. And also, a special reminder about the accessibility tools on Linux on the January 4th edition of the Luplug. And I've updated the calendar to reflect that. We're gonna to try to do that in the future. And also, I want to mention that you might have noticed we don't have a lot of time for news this week. Linux Action News continues on, and we did get to a lot of stories in episode 171, which came out yesterday, and you can get that at linuxactionnews.com. And a special plug for self-hosted 36 later this week, I review the new dedicated Home Assistant hardware. I think if you've been listening for the last few weeks, you know how much I love Home Assistant. Well... I got one. You got one? What? Oh, I'm excited already. Well, it's, it's here. It's running. You know, uh, I'll, I'll show you. Uh, I'll show it to you. Uh, it's super cool. And so there's just a couple a couple of things you need to know about. And I talk about all that in self-hosted episode 36 at self-hosted.show slash 36, which will be out later this week. Not out yet as we record this here episode. So there you go. That's the housekeeping. I think that's all the housekeeping we got for this week. Just nice and tidy. Right there, I was uh, I was listening to the uh, peer tube instance as we went along, and uh, I didn't have any drops during the uh, Wendell interview at all. Nothing, no drops at all. It was running super solid, and I was getting it from ten other peers, which was I think there was something like twenty people watching it, and then we had as we're going here something like ten people that are seeing it, and it seems to be that when you have that many people. Um, It it really kind of uh, smooths out any of the hiccups. Oh, that is so neat. You know, we were playing around in the IRC
3: room, too, and it looks like there is just a regular HLS feed that you can find the playlist for and pop it in MPV or VLC or whatever client you like. I know I'll be trying it with a Chromecast
0: later, so that should work with anything. Yeah, that's nice, because if you do that, not only could you watch the video stream in a native Linux client like MPV or VLC, but you're not seeding. Yeah, you wouldn't help us out with you know sharing uh, with right. everyone else watching, but sometimes that's what you need. Or you're on a uh, you know mobile connection, or just use what works. Hey, yeah, when you know if I was uh, if I was on vacation, but I was watching the shows just to make sure you guys didn't screw it up. I mean, uh, so I could still watch quality control. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd totally do it that way. So that way I wasn't burning through my LTE connection. So and it seems like we maybe we figured out a way we could seed it without having to watch as well. So you can watch it without having to seed, and you can seed without having to watch. Um, this is the stuff I love about free software in this stack. We can poke around with this and come up with solutions that we could never put together with something like YouTube, or or even something like Library, which, uh, for all effective intents and purposes, is a crypto scheme with a centralized um, control that can still be uh, had pressure applied to it by a federal government. Where PeerTube, peer that's decentralized. It's peer-to-peer, and it's federated. You could take down Jupiter Broadcasting, but who wouldn't take down the federation of PeerTube instances and in their videos? And it means that in the future, a project like Debian could have DebianTube, where they have their how-tos and tutorials, and they have their community events and conferences, all hosted on PeerTube, available for download. And you, you know, if you hear, oh, there's a Debian event and it's live, you don't have to figure out where or what platform or if it's on YouTube. You just know it's on DebianTube. All of their video stuff is on DebianTube. And now live streams are too. And it's so cool because it's, it's, it's a lot like YouTube. It's that simple as far as the user experience goes. It's part of the publish process. You publish and if your account's enabled to go live, you have an option to just live stream and it gives you the URL and the key. You plug that into OBS and you're live. Like if, if it was Twitch, it's just as easy to stream to as Twitch or YouTube. <laughs> uh, and it's incredible. It's incredible because we're running it all on one instance. And uh, we experimented over the weekend with a Linode 2-core instance that was just two cores and four gigs of RAM, and we were hosting 20 people in that live stream. And it was about 60% utilization. We did totally max it out when we started two streams. Well, I had to make trouble and stream myself. I mean, you couldn't have
3: all the streaming glory. You were even sending some pretty high-res stuff, and it looked good, and you
0: were able to play it back on the studio TV even. Yeah, it plays, the the PeerTube player even plays in Safari on the iPhone. I mean, it passes that low bar, so (laughs) it's like, really, it works anywhere. There's no flash required like it used to require back in the day when we first started streaming. I'm I'm pretty stoked about it. Uh, I think it still has a few hiccups here and there, but some of that could be implementation, so we're still testing it. But I think it's pretty exciting, not only because it could act as a canonical archive for all of the past and current JB shows, but it could mean that if, for whatever reason, you know, maybe JB, like I was, talk- I was speculating on the pre-show, maybe JB one day defends a. An encryption activist who's somebody who's who is publicly known for being anti-backdoor encryption and that becomes disallowed speech on YouTube will have a peer to platform. Maybe it never happens. Maybe it's just nice to just have it multiple options, but what's so great about it is we can just plug it into our existing infrastructure. We can send an RTMP feed to it, and we can stream to it just like every other endpoint we stream to. And now it's just part of that mix. And that's how we're starting to work with it. And I think it has a lot of potential for open source projects, much like I think Matrix does. There's a lot of the same shared potential there. Matrix for the chat and real-time communication, and then uh, PeerTube for project archives and live stream events. I think the two things complement each other a lot. Linode.com slash unplugged. Linode.com slash unplugged. That's where you go to get a $100 60-day credit. I was just checking. There's just no way, right? They're still giving us that deal? Wes, is this possible? Shh, don't tell them. It's too good. Did uh, Did you check with Janice in the back office? Because it's just too good of a deal. There's no way they're letting us still do this. She was having a sandwich. She gave me the thumbs up, though. Got the thumbs up. Okay. Linode.com slash unplugged. You go there to get a $100 60-day credit towards your new account. And, of course, you support the show. Linode is our cloud provider. This PeerTube instance that I can't stop going on about, yeah, you know it's hosted on Linode. It's really neat, actually, because first we set up a test instance, just like a proof of concept in minutes. And, you know, we chose an Ubuntu LTS base, 2004, then installed Docker on top of that, and then deployed the image, and we're up and going in, in just minutes, really. And then once we validated it, we thought, how could we build it a little bit better? Like, we could carve off lar- large chunks of block storage because it's super easy to just add a bunch of block storage to a Linode host. That's no problem at all. And Linode's prices are really competitive. In fact, 30 to 50% less than major cloud providers like AWS or Google Cloud or Azure. So the, the pricing's great, but we thought we could probably do it better than that. We were looking at the PeerTube documentation, and they have a they have a deployment approach where you use S3-compatible object storage. Well, guess what Linode has? They have S3-compatible object storage, which means we can just use as little or as much space as we need. We don't have to carve off terabytes at a time so that way we can accommodate months and months of growth. We can just use as much or little. And it also means that these files that PeerTube creates, like the different derivatives for lower-quality streaming, they're available to us via object storage for other automation purposes. Like perhaps we write some scripts that now publish those to archive.org. It's so great. Object storage is a lot of fun to play with. And combining it with Peertube, I think what we maybe have built here is a super easy reproducible model for other open source projects out there. You know, it's, uh, uh, right now we have a four core VPS because we want to play around with live streaming, but you could really get away with a two core VPS. Put some, we had, right now we have 16 gigs of RAM because again, we're experimenting, but initially we started with four gigs of RAM. This this could be like somewhere in the five to $10 a month territory over at Linode. You see what I'm saying? Wow, this could be really accessible for projects. You can one-click deploy a system with Docker ready to go. It's really simple for them to get going. The entire stack is open source. Linode is a participating member of the Linux community. They've been contributing to projects and events forever. They've been around forever. They started in 2000, and I think it was, actually, no, I think it was 1800s. Yeah, I think they've been around for 200. Oh, no, I'm sorry. No, that's not quite right. But they've been around forever. They're an independently owned company. They 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 started because they have a love for Linux. And you, you just, as a project, now have access to this. It's like just, it became available, YouTube in a box, but it's YouTube of the good old days, under your control. and It's not stealing your information. And it's, on the Linode stack, it's with a company that's been around since 2003, so you know they're in it for the long haul. Also, Linode makes it really easy to host game servers. I was playing around with this for my kid. They have multiple different types of game servers on there. Of course, they have things like Team Fortress and... Um, CSGO and Minecraft. The Minecraft one, you should check that out. They let you set all of the options you really are going to care about, like the in-game server options in the Linode setup screen. They've they've automated all of that for you too. (laughs) So cool. So if you want a safe place for your friends, your kids, your community to play Minecraft or one of the other many popular games, like Arcs, on there as well, It's such a nice
3: balance point though, right? I mean, you get the one click, you get the easy configurability because you know how to do it all. You don't have to fuss with it this time. But if you ever need to go back in and actually make more changes, I mean, you've got SSH access, you've got full control, it's all right there.
0: Yep. They they give you the whole range, which is, of course, appeals to Wes and I quite a bit. They're just dedicated to offering the best virtualized cloud computing. If it runs on Linux, it'll run on Linode. And then however much you want, automation or just build it from the ground up, you choose. And they make it all really accessible with a great dashboard. So get that $100 credit and play around. Linode.com slash unplugged. You go there, you support the show, you make it possible for us to give content away for free. And you help out a great company like Linode and become a customer. And it's a great ecosystem. I love it. Linode.com slash unplugged. Let's get into some feedback, Mr. Payne. Yes, we nuts. have a few emails. Let's start with the OpenSUSE feedback because, as you would expect, uh, we got a lot of it. <laughs> we got a lot of it. So, last week on the show, we, uh, we secretly ran OpenSUSE Tumbleweed for a week and then gave you our thoughts which in a super short summary version were there's parts of it we liked a lot. There were parts of it we were not big fans of, especially me. I wasn't a big fan of the Yast experience. Um, I've never been a particularly big fan of Zipper. I was using SUSE as uh, an enterprise user when Zipper came along. Wasn't a big fan of it then. And I'm still not really a huge fan of it. I think it's (laughs) one of the slower package managers out there. And I also think Yast is kind of slow and clunky. But outside of that... I think SUSE and OpenSUSE have really stumbled on a nice relationship between their enterprise products and their community products. And in the community space specifically, I think one of the things that SUSE is doing extremely well, I should say OpenSUSE to be clear here, is doing extremely well, is they have Leap for your server and Tumbleweed for your desktop or your laptop. And they even have Micro for like a real minimal viable server install. So they have this really nice suite. It's all very familiar. If you learn one, it's totally transferable to the other, and that really appealed. And we were wondering, could it replace Arch for us? But at the end of the day, uh, it just felt like there was too much that was old-school Linux for us, uh, specifically when it came to proprietary video card driver management and Yast. But Caleb wrote in and said, I love the show, but I was disheartened with your experience with OpenSUSE. Firstly, you make a valid point. The documentation is terrible, but they are working on it. And they uh, point us to t.me slash opensus underscore docs if anybody wants to help. But uh, Caleb suggests we try out OPI, I think, O-P-I. You think that's OPI or opus? I like OPI
3: because it's just a cute name, but it stands for OBS Package Installer. Search and
0: install almost all packages available for opensuse and SLEE. Hey, yeah, that sounds pretty handy. I think that's interesting, and it's kind of like it's answering that AUR question. Uh, and tying in OBS, which seems like it really should be just more integrated because in, it's such a great service. Uh, but uh, they wrap up with, lastly, I'd like to make an argument about Yast. OpenSUSE definitely should be clear about who it's intended for. Although Linux-y ways of doing things are still there for experienced users, as a sysadmin, I can tell you it really isn't for me. Nowadays, even small companies like the one I work for have dozens of servers, bare metal, containers, VMs, etc. No one in their right mind manages those with Yast over SSH or whatever. Uh, <laughs> that's a great point. Uh, who I think Yast is great for is a power user or a sysadmin who is not familiar with Linux. Yast does a great job of showing you what is possible in the OS and making it easy. Yes, building a software rate array in Yast doesn't directly equate to the knowledge of how to do that in Rel. The user does know that it's possible, though, and maybe what it should look like. Interesting, interesting defense. Uh, after we wrapped up the show last week, uh, Neil pointed out that it's actually possible to run OpenSUSE and remove Yast. Um, which I figured would be like a package dependency bomb that would just destroy your system. Right. It
3: feels so integrated into everything. Yeah. I do like that defense, though. Honestly, I, I think there is a class of user where, especially maybe you're you're just trying out Linux. You're you're an admin in your day job uh, doing Windows or something, where you're used to this very structured environment, lots of GUIs to click for, lots of that kind of deep system integration. Maybe yes, is just what you're looking for. And if if Neil's right here, and he usually is, we can just rip that out for folks that are more experienced or just want to do it on your own. Okay, maybe I need to give that a try.
0: And then perpetuating the cycle that always puts us off from ever talking about OpenSUSE and probably also makes it hard for us to enjoy it. Of course, I had people that were berating me on Twitter. Um, Number one troll, of course, being Richard Brown, who said that I've had people like him provide extensive, quote, feedback on my, quote, misunderstandings and, quote, false assumptions, end quote, about OpenSUSE over the years. Yet I, quote, stubbornly beat the same false drum. Uh, he is just bored of my rhetoric at this point, which I thought that was really – if that isn't quintessentially just a perfect example. You know, Richard Brown also publicly said, I was in the pocket of big ZFS years ago when I criticized ButterFS when it wasn't that great. Do you remember that? That was a cute one. <laughs> uh, and, of course, says, he, even though he publicly said I was in the pocket of big ZFS, whatever the hell that might be, uh, he hasn't given me any credit for my evolved stance on ButterFS as the file system has improved. Hmm, that's uh, interesting. And it's this kind of language, like uh, when he says that me saying that I don't like to use Yast or that I find Zipper slow, that that's rhetoric and false assumptions about Seuss, you know, he's, he's, he's saying he's using this language, like rhetoric, at a time when... Things are really not great in the States. And the words like rhetoric have a lot of meaning and a lot of power right now. And it it feels like it's a misplaced kind of energy and anger that's coming at me. And it's always kind of been this kind of arrogant stubbornness that has kind of radiated radiated out from the project by folks like Richard Brown. And even though he's less involved now, he still seems to be kind of still creating that same persona around the project. Because, you know, this these words I'm speaking now are going to be heard by tens and tens and tens of thousands of people. His tweet is going to be seen by a couple of people. So what does he think he's accomplishing with this kind of rhetoric and attack? And using this kind of language, it only escalates the situation. And it doesn't welcome anybody in to say, your experiences are wrong. He's denying me my own personal experiences in this tweet. That's
3: what stuck out to me, right? Because... I think we were legitimately trying, whether or not you liked our take or not, to to come at this with an open mind and sort of as a new pe- people who had not used OpenSUSE for quite some time and just get the experience and many people have pointed out the things that we missed or, you know, as some people have said, like, no one really uses, yes, like, what are you what are you talking about? But that was our experience just getting into it and we don't have the inside community perspective. I don't think we were trying to say, like, this is the truth. This was just our experience.
0: Yeah, and And I I think to say my my experience is a misunderstanding or a false assumption is unfair to me. My experience is that Zipper is slow, and my experience is that YAS kind of adds a complicated layer to managing Linux that makes it a unique experience to SUSE only, which presents non-transferable skills to other distributions. And I mean, maybe that's a false assumption, but it's it's my experience. It's, it's my, the way I see the world, and I don't like that he's shutting it down like that. But, Neil, I don't know if you want to wait in the middle of this uh, before we wrap this up. I, and I don't really want to turn this into a big SUSE bashing thing because I think it's actually a pretty great project, and they got a, little, a lot of great tech and engineers there.
1: Well, I don't want to bash OpenSUSE either. I mean, I'm, I'm heavily involved in the project, so it would be pretty bad if I did. I think there is plenty of fair criticisms about how people have generally approached OpenSUSE over the years. I mean, and I think it's, it's somewhat fair to say that Chris, a lot of your um, approach to OpenSUSE over the past you know five or so years has been influenced or colored by your previous experiences using it professionally, which I think is fine and fair, but at the same time, it's also important to acknowledge that, people who are longstanding in the OpenSUSE project who have been using OpenSUSE for a very long time, like if you saw the the end-of-the-year survey, the majority of people who have been using OpenSUSE have been using it for a decade or longer and are like twice my age, which is pretty insane when you think about it. And that means that maybe... The other part that's missing is just a lack of fresh perspective on the project as a whole. And that kind of dovetails into what you said about Zipper being felt slower to you. Uh, This morning, we actually, uh, there was a mailing list post that empirically said on OpenSUSE itself in a CI environment for a specific test case, mind you, like it's not proven across the board or whatever. But like for this specific test case, we found that Zipper was twice as slow as DNF for the same workload, for the same installation transaction. And I understand why that is. Like, I don't want to get into the details because it's kind of mind-numbing and boring for most people. But it's important to recognize that you have to continue to figure out how to evolve and to support a growing community over time. And perhaps some of the issue here is that a lot of the folks in the OpenSUSE community feel super defensive about their choice in the same way that, you know, Ten years ago, people used to be the same way about Arch. And Susa and Mandriva and Magia users, they're all in that boat now where people often criticize them for their choice rather than embracing them and helping them turn into people that can help make their choice of distributions better.
0: Yeah, I can totally I could totally kinda of see that. I think that's a really fair point. I hope that they are able to attract new blood, because it sounds like that may be an issue for the project if that many people of it have been using it for that long. But we uh you know, I, I we keep an eye on it. It just it seems like too. We I think there has to be room for different distros for different folks. Yes, definitely. And I think that's where SuSE falls down for us. It's like it's not that it doesn't work. It's not that it's some pile of garbage. It's just not the distro for us. And the way we've learned to work in the Linux ecosystem over a long time, because we 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 now we've been doing this for a while. Somebody coming in new and fresh. Uh, like Kayla pointed out in the email, that maybe doesn't know how to do something in Linux, but just wants to know it can be done or maybe needs to learn it's possible, Yast provides that functionality. I mean, there was a period of time when I was using Yast to connect my uh, Sless storage servers to a, to a Windows domain. And I knew how to do it on the command line using all the tools, but over time it just became... A lot nicer and quicker to just go into Yast and if I install that module if I hadn't if I didn't have it installed, put the credentials in, and let it just do its thing. And I use the hell out of that, and I told, so I can totally relate to somebody who maybe isn't particularly familiar with the process, being able to rely on Yast and knowing it's getting done right. That's just not where I'm at anymore, uh, and that's just my experience. But anyways, let's move on because uh, we had somebody write in that suggested that we try out Alpine. Jordan says. Uh, I know you guys never really had a personal use case for it, but one that I found for Alpine that nothing else can do is custom install media. Just for fun, here's what I did. I built a chroot on Arch. I use it to make a custom ISO. Then I boot the ISO in a VM, configure the network, save the changes with Alpine LBU, and then I boot that ISO with the LBU changes on real hardware. Boom! I have my own install image factory. The biggest drawback is that it uses MUSL? Oh, instead of GLibC. Mm, mm-hmm. Uh, he goes on to say, the area where this is an issue is proprietary applications. There is a compatibility layer for GLib C libraries, but I haven't tried Steam yet. <laughs> oh, wow. Alpine on the desktop. All right. <laughs> what I like about this feedback was that Jordan clearly got some of
3: our perspective, you know, just that Alpine is conceptually similar to Arch, they write, and that I th- I like to think of it as a smaller, simpler Arch. What stuck with me there is that clearly they picked up on what we wanted from Arch was this sort of simple base, very lean and mean, and that we could actually just have an understanding of everything that was going on, especially for the Arch server. I think think he's right, though, that, hey, maybe we should try Alpine in a few
0: more places, see where it fits. Yeah, that minimum viable server really is what appeals to us. And you can kind of see why maybe SUSE doesn't necessarily appeal to us, because what we want is just the bare, bare minimum where Wes and I can actually articulate to you the applications that are installed because it's Samba and NetData and everything else is in a container. We can articulate to you the file system, layout everything because we built it with our own hands and we only installed the packages we absolutely had to have. And that's one of the ways we think maybe we've been a little more successful now with Arch on the server is switching to the LTS kernel and really keeping that base install super, super minimal. I also like it as a way for, you know, there's lots
3: of stuff that Arch or Alpine or similar, they don't set up for you, or maybe they give you documentation about how to set up. And I I like us having to either figure out how to do that or not do that and skip it and live with the results, because it also gives you a nice window into some of the stuff you might get for free on a more fully featured distro like Fedora or Ubuntu.
0: Yeah, and I think there's a probably a future episode out there um, if we... Remember to wear our flame-retardant pants where we try out something like uh, Micro or some of the Just Enough OS stuff. Maybe if it's possible to run on the Raspberry Pi because it seems like that would be a great candidate for that kind of Seuss distro. So I could see future content uh, depending on what we get in feedback and if people are interested in that kind of stuff. I'm kind of thinking, Wes, we do uh, kind of a pick feedback special next week because we've got a lot of really good feedback that we have been able to get to. Yes, we do. Um, including some follow-up on MailSpring, which I am now back again using since we heard the developer popped his head up. Yeah, I'm using MailSpring again for my email, but I want to follow up more on that later because we got some email to that. Uh, We also got some people that got predictions in, so I want to get those in while we can while we're still within January, and a lot more. So, Wes, let's just jump to the picks and promise to do more feedback next week. Now, you may have noticed I've been thinking a lot about GPUs this week. I don't know if that came across and while I was looking at what the hell's going on between my X1 and the XBS 13 and of course my desktop, I wanted something that's like that, that utility that tells you everything about your processor that I forget what it's called, like XCPU or whatever. Um, well, there's GPU viewer and it's a front end to GLX info, Vulkan info, CLI info, and ES2 info. And it puts it all in a fairly decent, way it's not <laughs> beautiful i won't call it pretty yeah that was my main takeaway here
3: but it's a lot simpler to navigate than having to know all the commands and then figure out like paging in your terminal especially if you're new to this stuff and just want to figure out what's on your system and get to playing games
0: yeah is my vulkan support working am i on the accelerated gpu or am i using the open source driver these questions are immediately obvious to you with this tool and there's lots of ways to get that info but the nice thing about GPU viewer is you also get the nitty-gritty details, like the specific driver version information and the exact video card that's detected and the amount of hardware information that the thing can extract for your video card and and then all the other kind of like supported 3D features in Vulkan and OpenGL. And um, it's just a nice tool for troubleshooting graphics in general. And so it's called GPU-Viewer. We'll have a link in the show notes at linuxunplugcom slash uh, 388, or you can probably find it on GitHub because that's weird, is it on GitHub? It's on GitHub, it's packaged in Ubuntu 2010 and a few other places, or you can install it since it's just a simple Python app, so easy to get. A shout out to our core contributors. Unpluggedcore.com. Uh, they really are the uh, the hawks of this show. They they really they held in there. I, I announced last week that we had this bug where people who were who used the founder promo were not getting renewed, and so we had like this f- renewal renewal failure rate that was like fifty two percent. It was getting pretty bad. It was getting worse by the day. Well, I'm I'm happy to say that the bug's been fixed, and like ninety seven percent of anyone who ever used the founder code has got the discount reapplied. You don't have to do a dang thing. So if you sat back and didn't do anything, well, your procrastinating paid off because they fixed it for you. Uh, But I am still, for anybody who may have slipped through the cracks, because 97% is not 100%, and anybody else who wants to lock in a membership for this show and get access to the benefit goodies, I'm keeping that promo code 2021 going for a bit, and that will take two bucks off. Just doing that for a little while. Kind of like a happy New Year's deal. Then you get access to our feeds, either the limited ad version of the show, the same full production, you know, the version that really sounds good in the car or. You know, the one that had the Joe touch. And then there's also the bootleg feed, the full live version, all our screw-ups, the stuff that never makes it into the show. If you can't join live, that's the one you want. Yeah, it has that live experience, man. You can put it up on the TV and, like, you know, be working in the kitchen, and you would feel like you're listening to a live show. You get the full pre- and post-show. You just, It's basically like a whole other show. It really is. Um, and uh, we got a couple of shout-outs from diehards that make it through the entire file because it's much, much longer than the main show. Uh, and that's all available to anybody who wants to support us at UnpluggedCore.com. Uh, Mr. Payne, also, I want to mention that our friends over at CloudGuru have a Red Hat Certified Administrator exam prep course that you can take. Oh, ho, ho. Nice. Yes. And in this course, they cover like the concepts necessary to pass the Red Hat Exam using a mix of lessons and hands on labs. And then at the end, you put it all together with a challenge lab. And I know people have emailed into the show asking about certifications and which ones on a cloud guru we recommend. This is the one. And so we'll put a link to that in the show notes because, uh, I guess a lot of people have New Year's resolutions out there. So check out the Red Hat Certified System Administrator Exam Prep. That's the one we recommend for that particular path. If that's where you're going, I'll we'll have a link to that specific one in the show notes so you can get it at a cloud guru. Dot com and then we'll hold I think the rest of the feedback Wes, for next show because uh, I think we'll just do a feedback special so we got to, we got to some of it but I think that's that's what the plan is so do join us next week
1: see you
3: next week same bad time same bad station
0: and now is a great time to get
3: any feedback you might have slash contact and hey maybe we'll include it in next
0: week's show good point. Look at you, that's the hack, right? If you got something you've been wanting to get in, and now you know we're looking at the feedback in particular. Now's <laughs> <laughs> the time. You can just get it in. You can join us live, at jblive.tv. We do the show at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, or get it on a download. You can find the feeds for that at linuxunplugged.com slash subscribe. And like I said, links to everything we talked about today at linuxunplug.com slash three eighty eight. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you right back here next Tuesday. jbtitles.com. Let's go boat. And I know we don't have a lot of time. I wanted to kind of make this a slightly shorter episode because we've been going long. But I did want to actually get this on air because it's something I've been meaning to talk about and haven't had a place to like talk about it or troubleshoot with you guys. So jbtitles.com. Go boat. Meanwhile, Chris has some technical troubles. Yeah, I'm having some fedora woes. And it's nothing that's like, it's not gonna like, it's not a deal breaker, but I had this weird problem where all of my Flatpak apps have vanished from Plasma's purview. My launcher, my menu, K-Runner. What? It cannot find them. They don't exist. I can still execute them on the command line. And if I search for them in Discover and then go to their entry, I can launch them.
1: So they still register. They're there. They're just not there.
0: But they're otherwise unknown. And while they are running, I cannot right click and say pin to taskbar. I cannot add them to the menu, I cannot do, it's just the, I can, the option is it just, you check it and nothing happens. Uh, they just, and then I close them and they are, they're completely unfindable unless I do the flat pack execute command or I launch discover again. And here's, and so I don't know what that's about, but, and I don't know if this problem is related. I don't think so, but there's a separate kind of software discover issue where I will do a DNF upgrade, <clears throat> you know, update, or whatever, and I'll update all my packages. I'll get tons and tons and tons and tons of stuff installed because Fedora's always got lots of goodies. And then I'll reboot and I'll log in and I'll get the plasma notification that I have 14 updates available. So I'll do a DNF update. It'll say no packages available. So then I do a, fl- I'll do a flat pack update. It'll say no updates available. I open up discover and there's like 14 packages in there, in- including like what looked like to be just system packages. And then I do the update. So then, so that happened one time. Now the flip side has happened where I go and discover, it says there's no updates. I launch DNF. It says there's updates and that they just don't agree. Like none, none of them agree, but they seem to be installing some of the same stuff. And it's really strange. So I'll do a DNF update on the command line, reboot, and then get a notification. Hey, you got more packages. I go and discover, I do an update and it's not just flat packs.
1: I know what you're talking about. I know what's happening. Different cache. Yeah, there's two Ah. separate caches right now. So one of the problems that we have right now, and this is something I've been on on my spare time trying to figure out how to fix because I'm one of the, by virtue of happenstance, I'm now one of the maintainers of PackageKit upstream. I have been trying to figure out how to synchronize. Basically, the problem is because PackageKit and DNF don't expose APIs between each other to lock, the database, while it is refreshing and pulling in stuff, it can only do a lock when it's applying a transaction. The fix, quote unquote, was to make it so that they fetch caches independently to avoid races and all kinds of stupid stuff. Like back in the days when we were using Yum, everything was piped through the Yum tool. And what would happen occasionally is that when you ran the Yum command, it would be like waiting for package kit to quit, waiting for PackageKit to quit.
0: So can I ask you something? So what happens when? So I do a DNF update and I I, I install all the upgrades and then I go and discover and I, I I install all the all the updates there. Is it just reinstalling some of the same packages I just installed with DNF? Uh,
1: yeah. What's going yeah, what on? What actually happens <laughs> on the
0: file system?
1: Huh? Yeah, that's a good question. I think what actually happens is that it silently does nothing.
0: <laughs> it just chugs right along. What do you suppose is going on with the flat pack thing? Like all my flat pack desktop launchers are gone.
1: I'm guessing you updated to Plasma five twenty five.
0: Yeah, I always update, like daily. You can't keep plasma away from him.
1: <laughs> I'm basically making that guess because like I've heard all kinds of random bonkers stuff from different people about the Plasma 525 update just today. Like, three different hmm. people have told me three different things that have gone wrong in 525, and now I'm scared.
0: It may be a little bit further back, because I think this may have been going on, this has probably been going on for three weeks, two weeks, two weeks. Really? Okay, weeks. so
1: I wish I'd known this before, because like...
0: I know, I meant to bring it up to you last week, but I forgot.
1: Okay, I think I know what's happening here. So what what goes on for the flat pack stuff is that... Flatpak, in order for the desktop files to show up in the desktop, what it does is it has a profile.d snippet or environment.d helper or something. I forget exactly what it is um, that tries to export a variable that adds the Flatpak desktop file path to the search path so that when Plasma starts up or GNOME starts up or whatever, it'll read those additional desktop files because they're not installed in the same place as everything else is.
0: I'm just saying if I wasn't using a Flatpak, if I just installed a package from the AUR, this would not have happened. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying.